Hi, and welcome to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Today, John continues his study on church liturgy called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. This next lesson looks at five reasons why liturgy is important for growing healthy believers. It's common to get off track spiritually. And John explains that the gift of weekly church services and gospel-centered liturgy are what get us back on track and where we're supposed to be to grow strong in our faith. Here's John now with a message called Growing Healthy Believers, Part 1. I want to talk to you this morning about growing grapes. Growing grapes. Growing up as a young boy, I remember picking and eating muscadine grapes off of my grandfather's grapevines. Have you guys ever heard of muscadine grapes? They're really big with a tough skin, but they're great. You can just pop the skin and it's really good. I grew up as a young boy eating and picking my grandfather's muscadine grapes off of his grapevine. In his backyard, he had several rows of sturdy, carefully laid out trellises. And the grapes grew on these trellises. And so at the time as a little boy, you know, every summer, I didn't, I didn't have a clue about trellises. I mean, I didn't even recognize that a trellis was there. I would just run into his grape vineyard and grab those great big grapes and eat as many as I could till I would get sick. Um, but I enjoyed them. And so if my grandfather had asked me, John, why is a trellis important? I couldn't have given him a thoughtful response. In fact, I didn't even give that question uh, any thought whatsoever. It never even occurred to me to ask my grandfather, how important is the trellis? I just enjoyed grapes. So I did a little digging because I still, until a couple weeks ago, didn't understand anything about trellises and growing grapes. So, how important is a trellis for growing healthy grapes? I did a little bit of research, did a little bit of reading, and I got a grape growing guide, and I read it. And I found it interesting. So, according to the grape growing guide, you are to think of a trellis as a training system. And so, this is what the guide says. So, we're going to talk about growing grapes this morning. The guide says that to grow grapes in any significant amount so that they're healthy, you have to have a trellis system. And the reason is that because of the trellis system, grapevines cannot support the weight of a full harvest by themselves. And then it says, because grapes are fruit that grow in vines, you don't want them to grow all over the place like a wild vine. And then it says the most important thing to consider about a trellis is that it ensures that enough exposure to sunlight and air movement takes place so that photosynthesis can occur, so that the ripening of the fruit can occur, and so that the control of diseases can be done effectively. And then it cautions that many first-time grape growers plant their vines first before installing a trellis in the rush and excitement to just get started. And then it cautions this. It says, quote, I can assure you that this is not a good idea. Once 
your grapevines start growing, you want to immediately start training the young vines as soon as possible. Considering the fact that it usually takes a few years to produce any grapes at all, the trellis system is going to be in place for a good while. Plan for it up front, and you will be much better off. And then it ends with this wise advice. It says, consider having your trellis built by a fence contractor. You don't have to build the trellis system yourself. Often fence contractors can do it cheaper than you can. They can also save you a lot of backache and headaches. Fence contractors usually have access to all the necessary materials and tools. The good ones, the good fence contractors, are generally very helpful with layout and design as well. End quote. So now all of you know how to grow grapes, right? You know what a trellis system is. That's the importance of a trellis system. The church's liturgy is very much like a trellis for growing grapes. So why is liturgy important? And how important is liturgy for growing healthy believers? This morning, I want to talk to you about that. So I want to give you five reasons why the liturgy is important for growing healthy believers. Five reasons why liturgy is healthy or is important for growing healthy believers. Here's the first reason. And we'll spend most of our time right here this morning. Here's the first. The liturgy is the church's primary training system. The liturgy is the church's primary training system. The corporate gathering of God's people in the divine service, God's service to you, is the primary source of discipleship. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, Paul exalts the preaching ministry of the church. And he says in this passage that the ascended Christ, who is the gift giver, has poured out gifts, his gifts, upon the church. And his gifts in this context are ministers who preach the gospel. And Paul says that the reason the ascended Christ, who has now conquered all of his enemies and pours out his spoils of victory upon his church, upon his believers, and gives them these gifts, these gifted ones, these ministers are given to the church so that believers may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up like healthy grapes. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So Paul describes Christ's ministers as gifts given by Christ to the church so that they can train and build up the flock by exercising their office faithfully. And one of the primary ways that 
pastors, ministers, faithfully train and build up the church is through the church's liturgy, through the service of word and sacrament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, and he is chastising them about their public worship, their liturgy. And he says to the Corinthian church, he says, all things should be done decently and in order. The liturgy, like a trellis, is a training system for our sanctification. And it's to be carefully and intentionally laid out in order to keep our hearts from growing like a wild vine. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So that, we, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're not to become wild vines. But it, it, it appears, and it's very tragic and regrettable, that it appears that a great deal of churches are failing in the training system. A recent study by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, it conducted a poll entitled The State of American Theology in Our Country and in Our Churches Today. This is very important to hear. And it says this, it says, quote, We, Ligonier Ministries, they, they focused two of the 47 statements in the poll on the identity of Christ. What did we find? First, Americans are confused when it comes to the identity of Christ. Secondly, self-professing evangelicals are even more confused than the general population. The responses show the issue is deeper than mere confusion. What we see is this. Self-professing evangelicals are more heretical than the general population. So listen to some of these findings. The first of the two statements regarding Christ is this. Jesus is truly God and has a divine nature, and Jesus is truly man and has a human nature. If we consider this statement alone, the results are actually strong. 62% of the general population, consisting of 3,000 people surveyed, either strongly agree or somewhat agree with that statement. When we consider the specific profile of evangelicals, the number spikes to 83%. So again, they say that's encouraging, and it is encouraging. But listen to the second statement. Consider this. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 54% of the general population agrees with that. Now we see the confusion and also the heresy. To affirm that Jesus is truly divine precludes that he's a created being. This view that Christ is a created being is one of the oldest heresies to ricochet through the church in the early centuries. As the survey attests, this heresy persists in the present day. Here, however, is an even more startling statistic. When this statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, is put to evangelicals, they are worse than the general population. 63% 
of evangelicals agree with that theological statement. And 49% strongly agree with that statement. 83% of evangelicals affirm the deity of Christ in the first statement, and then they turn around and 63% of them deny the deity of Christ in the second statement. So R.C. Sproul recently commented, and he said, quote, that the creeds of the early church, the Nicene Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, have been neglected and misunderstood. He's exactly right. He says, quote, we have an anemic Christology in our churches. We haven't helped people think through the biblical teaching on the identity of Jesus Christ. The results of this survey show these claims to be true. And then the article goes on further, and it says, we could press this a little further. The issue in our evangelical churches is not the lack of a Christology. There is a Christology present. It is, however, a weak and heretical one. We need to recognize the gravity of this problem, so says Ligonier. A healthy Christology is not merely a matter of giving a survey question right. It's not about passing a test. Christ's true and proper identity is essential to the church's identity. This is true on two counts, the article says. Following Christ is central to Christianity. So this raises the all-important question, who is the Christ that we are following? Is it a Christ of our own making? We must follow the biblical Christ as he comes to us in the full orb nature of his identity. If we are not following the biblical Christ, then we are not following Christ. The second reason why Christ's identity is essential to the church's identity has to do with the work of Christ. Who Christ is has everything to do with what Christ has done. That is to say, Christ's person is essential to his work. We will not, as a church, proclaim the gospel aright if we fail to get the identity of Christ right. It's a gospel issue. The gospel is to be paramount in all things. This is a gospel issue. So the findings of this poll that I just shared with you, just briefly, two statements from this poll reveal fundamental convictions that not only shape our society, but that shape our evangelical churches. And so it would be helpful for us to recall that well-known saying that we said we attributed to Prosper of Aquitaine, that wonderful name, Prosper, right? Lex orendi, lex credendi, the law of prayer and worship is the law of belief. The way you worship affects and determines what you believe. And what you believe affects and determines and shapes the way that you worship. The Lutheran theologian Timothy Quill, he says, worship forms are based on doctrine. Worship practice reflects and communicates the beliefs of the church. Liturgy articulates doctrine. One of the benefits of the historical liturgy 
is that it provides a framework, a training system for educating, forming, and shaping believers in sound orthodox theology. Protects you. It forms and shapes and educates you. The historic liturgy repeatedly rehearses the creeds of the early church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday. All of these ancient creeds of the first four centuries of the church wrestled out and preserved the orthodox theology of the second person of the Trinity. And in so doing the historic liturgy, what does it do? It does this. It gives people lots and lots of the real Jesus. And lots and lots of the real Jesus is essential to worship and is essential to your life. Don't you want lots and lots of Jesus? Forms matter. What you believe matters. And so as a result of what we see with this anemic Christology in our churches, we have this anemic worship. We have what we said a couple weeks ago. We have Unitarian worship. We do not have Trinitarian worship. Unitarian worship, just what I give God, what I do for God, everything that I come to do for God. No mediation of Christ is needed. Just let me come and give God whatever you know you're supposed to give him. The article on growing grapes also notes this. It said that when grapevines start growing, you want to immediately start training the young vines as soon as possible. So listen here. The church's liturgy is the best and the most important spiritual training that young believers and mature believers can receive. It is the best training they can receive for their growth and maturity and their sanctification. Here's the application for us. This is why it is so important for families to worship together in corporate worship. It is not wise to provide for older children. I get, some, I get the younger children part because if they're just screaming the whole time, nobody can listen. You can't have a worship service. But for older children... It is not wise to provide them with an alternative worship service. Too often, these alternative services immerse young people into cultural liturgies which deform rather than form their expectations and their loves and their longings and their desires. Too often, youth are given an alternative service from the, uh, they call it the adult service, so that it can really be an age-specific service geared to their level. I can't tell you how often I hear this. And you go to these churches, and I've been to them, and I've walked in on them, and these services resemble a concert with lights and fog machines and loud bands, and they have Xboxes, and they have PS4s, where the kids are having PS4 and Xbox entertainment challenges and everybody's cheering and running around. It's just a ruckus roar. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what are my kids going to learn today? David and Wilson are playing, you know, PS4 NCAA football and what is it? The NBA 2K and you can hear them throughout the whole house. They don't need that on Sunday morning. They get that Monday through Saturday. 
Do you know what the problem is with these alternative liturgies that we put our young people in because we think it's so age-specific, it's going to be so helpful to them? Do you know what the problem is with those, those liturgies? A rock concert type of entertainment liturgy is a heart-level education in entertainment and spectating. As we learned early on in this series, rock concerts are designed in their liturgy to make you a spectator, to be entertained. When you go to a concert, you're not a participator. And if you are, you will be arrested, right? (laughs) You are there to sit back or to stand up in the mosh pit and get passed around to be entertained, to have a great time. I'm not knocking that. It's fun, right? But it's designed to make you a spectator and to be entertained. You're a passive audience. You don't go to concerts to perform, but to watch the performance. You're a spectator of what somebody else is doing. And for too long, too many of the evangelical churches, due to a deficient confession of faith, have trained young people to be spectators in church, not participators. And so again, remember this well-known maxim attributed to this 5th century man, Prosper. The law of prayer is a law of belief. The way you worship affects and determines what you believe. Let me give you some examples. Islamic worship makes you a Muslim. Buddhist worship makes you a Buddhist. Roman Catholic worship makes you a Roman Catholic. Pentecostal worship makes you a Pentecostal. So let's apply that to the alternative young person service. Rock concert liturgies make young people into entertained spectators always looking for the next big thing to occur. And so having trained our children with the wrong trellis, we wonder why so many drop out of church after they graduate from high school. Listen to this survey conducted by Lifeway Christian Research. 70% of young adults ages 23 to 30 stopped attending church regularly for at least a year between the ages of 18 to 22. 70%. Why is it that when our young people graduate from high school, they say goodbye church and they're gone? There are many reasons and it's fairly complicated, but here's one is not one cause the fact that our young people, by and large, have not been brought up and trained in the worship life of the congregation gathered around word and sacrament each week. We've told them that it wasn't relevant to them. So we ship them out to an age-specific alternative liturgy that is a rock concert. And so because they've never been brought up and trained in the worship life of the trellis of word and sacrament, they've not been trained from early on in their life to see that the visible church is actually essential to their life. That there is no sanctification without the church. They have grown up and been trained on the wrong trellis. Have you ever tried to bend a petrified piece of wood? Doesn't happen. But a green piece of wood can bend all over, but it'll flex, but not break. 
In his book, You Are What You Love, James Smith says this. He says, spiritual formation in Christ requires a lot of rehabituation precisely because we build up so many disordered habits over a lifetime. He's exactly right. This is also why the spiritual formation of children is one of the most significant callings in the body of Christ. Every child raised in the church in a Christian home has the opportunity to be immersed and kingdom-indexed habit-forming practices from birth. That's a great advantage. Corporate worship is the heart of discipleship. It is the primary training system in the church. These repeated weekly practice of disciplines and regimens, they are reaching down into our deepest habits, and the liturgy trains us to develop new godly habits. And so the church's liturgy, the trellis, has to be in place a long time, a lifetime, so that our hearts are continually trained in godliness. Thanks, John. That's the message called Growing Healthy Believers, Part 1. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.